hello and welcome to product or no, I didn't, I didn't call it product. Now I called it talk product. I actually named it. Um, so this is a show all, all about talking about digital product design, tech life, and how to get into the industry. So today I'm talking with one of my favorite humans, Aaron Irizarry. Hi, Aaron. Hey man. And you know what? Change the, change the title, call it what you want. Product, <laughs> talk, product, product, talk. Talk I changed like three times. Yourself. Yeah, <laughs> do it, man. It's your show. Run with it. Yeah, man. That's all about that Twitter handle. <laughs> so I can get that Twitter handle. That's the title of the show, right? <laughs> oh gosh, what has social media done to us? <laughs> oh, dude, it's terrible. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Aaron Irizarry, um, Southern California born and and bred and raised until about five, almost six years ago. I moved to the East Coast for work. Um, uh, Casey and I have grown up kind of in the same area in Southern California and then worked together, uh, which was a lot of fun. And now I'm uh, the Senior Director of Platform Servicing Design at Capital One, where we build all of the tools the design teams use to build for our customers, right? So we build their design systems and we build interfaces that let them write answers and questions for our AI, our bot, Eno at Capital One. And so it's been really fun to do that kind of work. And um, it's been a little different, especially because I recently joined this team. So I've not really been in a room with any of them, but at the same time, I'm in this like digital room with them and it's been a lot of fun. And so, uh, you know, with that, it's, it's really exciting because this will allows me to pursue something I'm really passionate about, which is not just design, but like design leadership and growing and mentoring designers. And so, it's been a blast, man. That's cool, man. Yeah, like we were just talking right before we were recording this this episode, like how the pandemic has just changed the way that we work. And like we have some team members, like you just said, like they're on your team, but you haven't met in person yet. I wonder, like, has that changed your team dynamic at all? Uh, it does. I mean, you know, what's interesting is I think it changes it for the better. And one of the things, if anything, that I'm and I promise not to say the unword, which is unprecedented, even though I just said it in the <laughs> times, right? Um, you start to appreciate things that maybe before it's like, oh yeah, I would be in the office with my team all the time. Oh, we got a new team member. We'll take him to lunch. We'll do all these things. And we have all these very, very easy ways to connect and build relationships with people. Now we're all digital. So now we have to like be real intentional and make an effort with how we connect with people. And that means over communicating. That means, which not to like out everybody, but that means we've got to listen now. We got to really pay attention to our conversations because, you know, in person you can nod and smile, shake hands. Oh, that's great. But when you're talking to someone digitally and you're trying to connect with them, you really have to focus on what they're saying. And so, um, of course, with some of those team members, I would love to just like be hanging out with them and learn, you know, working in the room and just finding that time where we grab a, like a, a meeting room and just collaborate and knock something out real quick. But at the same time, you know, we're forced to think about how we can communicate better now. And so not ideal, but it's working. Yeah. It's funny. Like I almost feel like we're more human now that we're working remotely. Like yeah. I know my coworkers dogs names and yeah. like their cat, like their pets. And I've met their family members just cause you hear them through phone calls. And so it's like, Oh, sorry, that's my dog barking, yeah. you know? And uh, it's, it's just weird. Like I wouldn't have known any of their pets or like, you know, it starts other conversations too about their personal life that you wouldn't have otherwise known without a pandemic happening. It's weird. It's bizarre. Yeah. You know, my, my weird, so I like, I don't know if it's because I'm like compulsive, obsessive compulsive or whatever, but like 
for a while there, I was really interested in what people were going to choose for like their virtual Zoom background if they didn't want you to see their natural home environment. And I was like, some people were like, oh, I'll just use a, you know, a typical I'll toe the line, do a capital one background. Other people were like, oh, it was the place they went on vacation or uh, a, a TV show they liked or a, a thing. And you're like, oh, I'm getting a small peek into something about this person or like what they like, what they're into by what kind of virtual background they chose, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and it raised a lot of questions. I mean, like the, like you were, when we were first were chatting, you were talking about the photos on the wall behind me. Like that's been a point of conversation at work all the time. Like, wait, I thought those were just like World War II pictures. And now there's like Star Wars in there. That's really cool. Where'd you get those? One guy was like, I was like, telling him like, I'm actually going to switch it and do all band stuff behind me now. And he was like, oh, dude, I'll buy those off you. And I'm like, uh, no, dude, just go to this site. They're like, they're, they're like 20 bucks a print. It's like nothing crazy. Like go get it. But it was cool because we had this common thing. We talked about like having art on our walls and stuff. So it's, you know, it's definitely a very interesting way to connect with folks now, you know? Yeah, for sure. So many people are zooming from the beach. Like they all use the same uh, beach background. I'm like oh, impressed. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, all right, wait a minute. I know where that beach is and I'm pretty sure we're still in the same time zone. So you're just trying to flex right now. Like you're trying to show that like you've been on vacation somewhere really cool or, or you, that's where you're going to go as soon as you can. Uh, yeah, man. It's so funny. So I, I know that we've, we've worked together for a long time and I've known you for a long time. Um, so I personally know a little bit about your background and like kind of where you come from, but I'm curious, like where, like, how did you get started in design? Like, when did you start getting, like, interested in, in the design field? Um, I'm going to caveat this by saying that this conversation is probably going to make me, I'm going to date myself. So for me, you know, I've always just, I'm kind of like a very high, strong and passionate person. And so I, for better or worse, I find the things I like, and then that's what I pursue. And what's unfortunate is that the things that I don't like are usually the things that I can't be good at real quick. Like if I can't master it soon, I'm like, this is a waste of my time. I need to be good quick. Right. And so for me, I had this desire to like express and to communicate and to talk about things. And so for me early on that manifested in playing music. And so, you know, I, I uh, got involved with friends and we did some underground like thrash metal and punk and hardcore bands and I was like, oh, this is fun. I'm expressive. We're creating. And uh, we started to need like shirts. And this was in the late 90s. Speaking of dating myself, we start, you start to need like, oh, websites are becoming this thing where bands are using. And we didn't know anything about that. So I, I went to like Best Buy and bought like an HP computer and then went on the internet and I'm probably gonna get arrested after this, but like hacked a bunch of software and pirated it. And it was just like, I think at that time, again, it was like Photoshop, maybe three or four. And I was just like, I want to make a sticker for my band. And I just kind of dug in and tried to make stuff. And I, I started by trying to make all our show flyers. And man, when I see those things now, they're like, the, <laughs> they're horrid. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, I, I'm pretty sure that like a, like a church bake sale flyer is better than this. But that got me just kind of started as like, oh, this is cool. I can help my band besides, you know, being a part of it. And then, uh, you know, some of those bands, you know, those underground bands, we got like underground label support and they were like, oh, you made all the stuff. Do you want to design? I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, oh, do you want to like make a website for your band? And like, it's like, uh, can I, is that something? And they're like, yeah, sure. Here's the software, like legit. 
we're giving it to you. And that was like, they gave me the Adobe suite in like 1998 or nine. So imagine what that looked like. I think, yeah, uh, Macromedia might've still been separate from Adobe at that time. I my, my history is a little blurry, but that just got me thinking about like being creative. And I started realizing like, wait a minute, this is something I really enjoy doing. And there's a pretty solid chance I'm going to make more money doing this than being in an underground band. So that just kind of got me started thinking about it and then doing it and seeing the, oh, other bands wanted stuff. And then I started just kind of slowly going down the path and it just kind of like snowballed from there. And then eventually, like after a while, after just doing like design late nineties, early two thousands, it was like a lot of posters, you know, postcards, business cards, graphics, websites, things like that. Um, I started really getting interested and in learning more about like the why behind design because I would see like really beautifully made things, but the people who had those things weren't getting the response they wanted. And that started getting me thinking about like the why, well, why isn't someone engaging this? And that really led me down like this massive rabbit hole of at the time was starting to be like UX design. And like, you know, I didn't realize there was a whole field of like library science, which became IA and like human computer interaction. I was just like, I want to know, how do I make these people use this stuff that I'm making for people? And it just snowballed over time. And next thing you know, like I work at a bank who knew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. Don't feel bad. Cause like back then we were all pirating shit. Like mm -hmm. I think I remember that version of Photoshop. It had like the eye on it with the feather. Yes. And I would use that to draw like final fantasy characters. Cause I was yeah. probably in middle school then. <laughs> and yeah. you know using pirate bay and i think there's like oh, a yeah. wire and lime wire yeah you see all my music from lime wire back then just kidding friends <laughs> <laughs> friends bands sorry yeah man um so yeah dude like i remember when we were working together way back in the day and i saw that you were doing web design and i like to me that just seems so much cooler than what i was doing and that seemed like so much more fun like you would just jump into the room with all of us working be like hey check out these uh cat memes or whatever i'm like dude this yeah. guy's talking about cat memes and being creative and getting paid for it meanwhile i'm here doing qa like what am i doing with my life right now <laughs> just on the record i did not get paid for the cat memes <laughs> you know it's interesting for me i didn't i didn't know what i was doing i mean i probably don't now but back then i was just trying to do something with it and with the exception of people like, you know, maybe a, a Phil Collins, um, not the Oscar nominated singer, but probably the better Phil Collins, you know, who gave me a chance to like explore what I really wanted to do. And then like to push me to be really good at it, even knowing that I probably wasn't ready at the time to like take on bigger design projects, big UI projects and like sit day to day with engineers. Like I didn't know none of that stuff. And so for me, it was a lot of just like being super scrappy figuring shit out and just like, you know what? I'm going to say that I know how to do that. I know I don't, but I'm going to say yes to you. And as soon as you leave the room, I'm going on the internet and I'm going to learn how to do that. And then I'm going to do it for you. And I mean, that's how I just learned to do anything in my career. I, I don't have any great professional like schooling or degrees or anything like that. I just like, God, I hate the term hustle because it used to be cool and probably not very cool now, but I just like, I worked, yeah. like, I put it in, I just figured out what had to be done and I did it. And one of the things I learned early on that made up for my deficiency in skill was my ability to make relationships. And I had no idea that that was just me trying to like blow smoke and like get in the door. 
and make sure people didn't see what I felt was my like, you know, I was really like heavy imposter syndrome. So if I could keep everybody happy and be cool with them, they wouldn't see that I actually don't always know exactly what I'm doing. But then once I got older and in, especially in my design career, and even like now, and this is a relationship business, like as a designer, if you want to see your shit go live or you want to ship or you want to be good, like you got to build relationships. You've got to work with your engineering and product partners and your marketing partners and your business partners, because you have to deliver value across the board. And if not, and you're just like, Oh, I'm just a designer. I'm right. You're actually not a designer. You're probably just an artist because you're making it for yourself. And so I had no idea that early on, my desire to make relationships to cover up for what I thought was my lack of ability in design served me way later in my career when it was like, oh my gosh, I'm leading a team and I have to work with these product partners to make sure that we can all work together. And it, it just, it, I was like, oh, wow, <laughs> I accidentally developed a skill. This is great. Yeah, man. I feel like you and I have like pretty similar paths. Like for me, it was kind of the same way. Like, you know, I'd find something interesting, something shiny and new. And I'm like, oh, I want to do that. And I would just kind of go for it and I'd be interested enough and get semi-successful at it and then find another thing that's similar to it and go, oh, this is shiny. This is new. And I'd yep. pursue that, not knowing 100% how to do it, but having the willpower to learn and to adapt. And I feel like that's how, because you can code too. You, you, you code, you know, you've coded in the past and you've, you've also designed and you've become sort of like a specialist, but also a generalist yeah. and I feel like we had the same sort of same dynamic, like with our past. When it comes yeah, to I, I don't even want to think about the code I wrote back then because <laughs> it was, it, it, it probably wasn't accessible. It was probably not compliant. It was probably really bad, but you know, there's that, that's the scrappiness, right? You do whatever you have to do to pursue your passion. And even now, like, because of that, I can relate to the engineering partners I have. And there, yeah. I mean, you know, I know, I mean, anything I wrote code wise a number of years ago in comparison to now is a completely different world, but I understand that need to know the feasibility of what I'm building. Cause sometimes I had to build it myself. I was like, well, that idea is not going to work in code. So I better restart. And so that's something I've always instilled in my designers is like, just get to know your partners, get to know your engineering partners, especially, and just see how they tick, how they work and make sure that you have that relationship with them where you can say like, Hey, we're thinking this, is that like realistic? Can we build that? Um, if not, what's the closest we can get? And let's work to get there together. Uh, and that, and I think that really serves designers well to, to be able to find a way to build those kind of relationships. Yeah, because development, they need a design culture as well. Because it's like, for me, yeah. my opinion has always been design is sort of like a means to an end. Like you can spend all this day on research and all this all this time making pixel perfect design. But at the end of the day, if development doesn't have a healthy design culture or something that kind of keeps them uh, on like par with what we're making, then if production doesn't reflect all the hard work that we put into, then it's kind of all for naught, right? You have to have that relationship. Yeah, well, and my, one of the things I love to try to think about when I staff teams, um, depending on the type of work we're doing is can I one in my team staff engineer engineering forward designers right yeah sometimes even designers who used to be engineers right and they're just switching careers or or designers who just have a, a good engineering mindset and then work with my partners to find them design forward engineers not because i want every engineer to be a designer or vice versa 
but there, that kind of just creates this cool little squishy middle area where people know some things and it provides an easier connection between the two teams, uh, especially when you think about things like design systems, right? Your every, what does every design system have? The component, the usage guidelines, here's the snippet of code to use. Like that's a great opportunity for designers and engineers to find this weird, awesome middle area to just hang out and sharpen each other's skills, you know? Yeah, totally. I think, I think design and development, they're more in tune than a lot of people think. Cause there's always those conversations on Twitter. I mean, it pops up like every other month, like should designers code or should, should coders design and that whole thing. But the, the reality is like, you're getting a product out of it and you have to work together. You have to find some cadence. Otherwise there's, it's just going to be a mess and things aren't going to be cohesive and they're not going to work correctly. Like my, my opinion too, has always been that code should be treated almost as a medium to produce design sometimes. Like it's kind of like deciding whether you want to write with a pencil or, or write with a typewriter. Sometimes it's more appropriate and quicker to write with a typewriter, or sometimes it's more appropriate to, to write with a pencil. It, it depends. Right. Or like if you make music and you've yeah. written all your songs and you go into the studio and there's an engineer in that studio who's going to produce and deliver and record your work. And they're going to tell you like, Hey, do it again. One more time, do another take. And you're like, I thought that was good. Like they're making your work a reality. And that's the role of design product and engineering is to make the intent that people want for their business a reality. So in my mind, it's like, just do whatever the F it takes. Like, who gives a shit what your role is? Just dive in and get the work done. And actually you'll probably come out selfishly better for it in the end because you're going to be a well more rounded like team member, you know? Yeah. But yeah, and I mean, you know, there's that funny thing about Twitter where we always find a great way to argue about design. And then, you know, it's really funny because I used to get really frustrated with that. And then politics really got bad over the last so many years. And now Twitter is so much politics. And I'm like, man, I wish we just argued about design again. <laughs> I think we probably still do somewhere, but it's just kind of mixed in with all these other kind of posts because, you know, designers are opinionated and that crosses over with politics. But it's like, man, do you remember when we used to argue about like, should designers code or what is this or that? And I'm like, now we're like angry all the time on Twitter. Yeah, things are simpler we, back you know, then. We probably, rightly said, we probably should have been for, you know, for, for the last so many years. But like, it's just funny how that like evolves. And I was thinking about that. It's like, man, I haven't heard a good like design argument in a while. <laughs> It's funny, like um, I had a break from social media for a couple of years um, where I left like Twitter and all that. And I only came back because of the pandemic. Like once things were going down and toilet paper was disappearing and like our freeways were empty and we couldn't go anywhere. And it was, it was in the beginning where nobody knew what this thing was and everyone yeah. was like super terrified. And so I'm like, oh shit, I got to like connect with the outside world. Like I can't just like sit in my bubble anymore. I have to actually connect again. So I rebooted up Twitter, made a new handle, you know, um, connected with a few people and just tried to keep my mental health like on check and, and try yeah. to keep a semi-social life while we were like really locked down for those first three months. But yeah, man, it was really scary. Yeah. I got to follow the like toilet paper bots. So you know where it stopped. <laughs> right. Dude, that was the weirdest thing. Like, we were hearing about it on the news and we were hearing that, Oh, all the toilet paper is like, people are getting it all and all the foods disappearing. And Laura and I were like, whatever. So we go down to the grocery store and we're like, Holy shit, this stuff is actually gone. Like, what are we going to do? <laughs> That's the funny thing for me. Like, you know, growing up in Southern California, I was like, Oh, 
you stock up stuff in case there's like an earthquake, right? Because there's not yeah, a yeah. Or fire or something. Because those are only really two things that ever happened in California. There's not a lot of weather. Um, but then I was like, of all the things, like there's a pandemic. You shouldn't be around other people. And the thing you're most concerned about is like, man, I just got to consistently be able to wipe my ass. That's it. <laughs> like that's that's it. Like that's the thing you're worried about. Like yeah. I was finding more bottled water on the shelves than toilet paper. And I was like, wait, you know, you could probably stay hydrated too. Just saying, like in case this goes Mad Max style, water is going to be like a commodity, you know? Yeah, dude, it was, it's the weirdest thing. Like all the toilet paper was missing and then all like the Lysol was gone. You couldn't find a Lysol and that became like its own currency. Like if you could yeah. find a Lysol, then it, it was like a Mad Max situation. Like that was the gasoline. Yeah. I feel like the Bitcoin crowd missed out on that one. <laughs> <laughs> totally, man. Well, I kind of want to circle back and talk a little bit because you were talking about music. Yeah. And um, I'd love to talk about your kind of history with hardcore metal. Like, because I know you were a frontman. You talked about a little bit. Um, point of recognition. Um, I'm curious, like, what lessons did you learn from, from that experience? And how did you kind of apply that to your career? Uh, for me, music was always expressive, right? So I grew up in a split family in the 80s. And so I had two families. And as a result, I got two kind of different influences of music. One that was kind of funny was that like, um, I never forget, and again, dating myself, the first time I got to buy my own uh, cassette, and I bought Van Halen 1984. Yeah. Uh, but the cover for me was like, it was the baby with the angelines, he was smoking with them. I was like, oh, this guy's... Whoever this kid is, he's going to be a badass, right? So I, so I bought that cassette. Um, before that, though, um, you know, we listened to vinyl a lot in the house, and I wanted my own vinyl. And I wasn't very—I mean, I wasn't even ten yet. I just wanted whatever my stepdad. I wanted that. And he's like, "Well, what do you like that we listen to?" And so he takes me to the store. And we get uh, Alice Cooper, Million Dollar Baby, which, if you see that album cover, it's not—you know—parents in the in the seventies and eighties, maybe weren't so keen on it. And it caused this argument in our family. It was really funny, but music for me was always that. And that family was very ecumenical with music. It was a lot of like, you know, we listen like I, uh, I watched the first ever episode of MTV, right? Like I sat in front of TV and watched this stuff happen. And then I goes to the other side of my family it was very interesting too, because they were very expressive about music, but different bands. And so I listened to a lot of, oddly enough, a lot of like new wave and metal with them. And so we'd listen to a lot of Judas Priest, but then we'd also like, oh man, we had mad respect for the cure um, or, and hip hop. And so for me, it was always finding what did I, for me that I realize that now, um, especially when I listen to music when I work, it's like, what do I feel like right now? What am I listening to? And so that changed for me over time. And there would be periods where I'd listen to one music over the other. And it was always, for me, it was always about the expression. It was always about the message um, and just like feeling I connect with it. And so then for a while there, I didn't make so many great choices in my life. And so I had a chance to do a band. And at the time we were really thinking about how we could help people. And, you know, growing up in a religious family, we, we had a pretty religious message in the band. And a lot of that was because we just wanted people to have hope. And all of us were kids who were not necessarily always accepted by the church. And I, I don't, you know, I don't carry a lot of those beliefs now, but the intent was there is to like, just give kids some hope and like something that something, you know, uh, to, to escape to every weekend and have fun, go to a show and dance around with your friends, jump on stage and sing stage dive and who cares. And like, 
<clears throat> just have this safe place where they had a blast, right? And that's really what got us into that. And, you know, we liked, all of us who did it all liked, you know, came from backgrounds where we liked different kinds of music. And actually what's really funny is there's, uh, you know, some of the music we liked would show up, not always in, sometimes in the records, but sometimes really in the live show. So we would, I remember one time we had, we would start our show by playing an intro and our drummer played this one specific beat while it was, it was metal, but he played this one beat that was inspired by the cure and how the drummer Andy played with the hi-hat. And it was just something he threw in there that was cool. Um, or when we, uh, we did a, like a secret song on a record, the intro to the song was us playing the beginning of Orion by Metallica. Like we always just oh, had yeah, fun influences <laughs> in and like, we were a metal band, but we toured with punk bands and you know, like it just, we just had a lot of fun with that. And I think that um, that really shaped me. I think the thing that I take the most out of all that, besides the friendships that we made and the people I still talk to was like, I saw so many different kinds of people and being from Southern California, everybody says that Southern California is like a melting pot, but that just depends on where you live. Cause where we're at, it's like white suburban track homes for miles. Right. And so you go and see other cultures and how people live and their different experiences and what they've lived. And it just, if you let it, it just gives you a rich development of yourself over time. And, and that's the stuff with music that I've always been thankful for. And I've kind of carried some of that, I tried to, and however I can into like work and the relationships I build and realizing that like, yeah, oh, hey, I started a new role, managing new teams. Like I'm going to be a sponge and just learn about these people so that I can connect with them easier, you know, little stuff like that. I think, you know, for me, music is whatever you're feeling in the moment. Like today for me, it was all, um, one of my favorite metal bands is Within the Ruins. And I forgot that a couple of years ago, they released a two disc set of all their most popular songs without the lyrics. So it's just all instrumental. And I was just I did like, not know oh, that. I will, I will send it to you. It is so good. And it's really technical metal and it's fun to listen to. And there's just, but there's just no words. And so it's a lot of fun. So sometimes there's that kind of music, right? No words, just it's jamming in the background. Other times I'm like, I feel a certain way. So you're like, yes, I'm going to listen to nineties hip hop today. Or, or, you know, I'm going to listen to um, like one of my favorite, like just kind of general rock bands to listen to is Queens of the Stone Age. And just there's a, like the creative process in that band and all the desert sessions they do sometimes when i just want to feel creative i just listen to them other times when i've done like want to be motivated it's hard and fast right um or fun like i've been finding i've been watching a ton of anime with my girls right and i've been learning over time that a lot of the intro and outro music in anime is all japanese metal pop punk bands and so i'm like i'm learning about all these rad bands i would have never learned about otherwise so you know music is just that fun kind of connector across a lot of different things hell yeah dude i remember back in the day when we would commute to and from la and we would be we'd uh, listen to rhapsody oh yeah dude yes <laughs> you're the only other guy i knew that had the same kind of weird taste in music that i had like there's this weird camaraderie with audiophiles who like that kind of dramatic type of music oh right? yeah the very like theatric theatric stuff. yeah because yeah. all that stuff like rhapsody was very like is this just songs about lord of the rings you know and it just had that vibe big instrument yeah. with like you know they always have some kind of choir in the background some dude with a deep voice narrating like for for at least three quarters of the song about how the dwarves fought the trolls or something it's just 
it was just such weird but awesome stuff that you're like dude this is i i gotta appreciate it it's just rad you know yeah man like i was starting the car last week and you know taking Laura to lunch and i forgot that i was playing rhapsody <laughs> like i think i was going i think i was going to go to a surf session and usually right before i surf i listen to epic metal to get myself yeah. like in the in the zone yeah so i i turn on the prius it's the prius of of all cars right yeah. so I, I boot up the prius and all of a sudden you hear christopher lee going and then the dwarves came and forged <laughs> the mighty sword and laura's like what the hell are you listening to I'm like, whoops, like, sorry. Lord of the Rings audiobook. <laughs> Dude, so there's, speaking of connecting over music, yeah. uh, either when I go for a walk or a run in, in my town, there's this guy that the, the girls and I just call like Metal Dude. I don't know him. I've never met him. He walks around with cargo pants, no shirt on, long blonde hair and a ponytail, uh, headphones, not wireless, connected to, it is an iPhone, but it would be even better if it was like a Walkman. And just playing air drums and jamming. And he's just walking through town. And that's his exercise. And sometimes I'm running by, like when I remember one time I was running and I had like an old Iron Maiden shirt on. And he saw me and he was like, gave me the horn, <laughs> you know, as I walked by. And I was like, I was like, horns, dude. That's like metal dude noticed me. Like, this is great. And so now every time I see him in town, he just gives me the nod. We don't say anything. We've never spoken a word to each other. It's just the nod because we connected both assuming that each other really liked that kind of music it was it was it's just a funny thing about music like that dude i met this dude uh out in the water anywhere else like we um i was surfing and there's this big guy with long hair and first somehow we got talking to music because it was really flat out and he started bringing up sonata arctica and i'm like dude i oh, love wow. sonata and we started talking he's like you like bathory i'm like hell yeah i like bathory and he's like you want to surf forever and be my best friend and i'm like of course and it's <laughs> like this weird camarade like these complete strangers but it's like if you have that connection with with metal or or music it's like instantly there's there's a camaraderie behind it it's really bizarre and you know what's funny about that is i think about it like we don't tend to approach our relationships that work that way right yeah it's like, well, that's a product guy that's an engineering woman over there um and i bet if we approach it like huh i wonder what makes that person tick we would learn like oh my gosh like i wore a uh at a meeting i was in i had an out the hip-hop band outcast i had one of their shirts on um but it was only a few lyrics on the front of the shirt so you would only know like if you knew outcast you would know that's an outcast shirt and there was a guy who i did not think I, I'm and I will be totally out. Let, let them cancel me right now. I will out myself as thinking like, this is a dude that probably listened to Dave Matthews band. Right. I had no, I just by, if I would, I was being judgy on me and he's like, Oh my God, I love outcast. Dude. I love your shirt. Where'd you get it? And then our next 20 minutes of the meeting was just talking about music. And he's like, well, I'll just set up another meeting for us to talk business. Let's just finish this and have fun. And our relationship changed after that. And our partnership working together changed, right? It's just, that's the kind of stuff that happens, right? When you um, think about the stuff you enjoy, like, how do you, like, we know what makes us tick because that's how we know you, when you were in the water, that's how you knew you were going to relate to that dude, right? Why are we not putting that effort in with our partners and our other people we work with? No, totally. And it's, and it's weird too. Like you'll, you'll be in different departments where they almost are like competitors. Yeah. Like, but we're all working for the same company. It's like, one of the things, one of the challenges I'm trying to kind of help with 
is uh, we have a lot of different designers across different departments and experience because uh-huh. experience is a big company, right? But we have a lot of little satellites, like we have a lot of little yeah. departments and they all have their own design teams. And I've been trying to find a way to like herd all the cats and get us all talking. And we've made yeah. some kind of efforts to it, but it's it's really difficult to get everyone to like get on board with a system or, or figure yeah. out a similar way to solve common problems. And it's, yeah, it's, it's difficult. Dude, we have a 600 plus person design team at Capital One. And, oh, my team, man. and my team is in charge of building the design system that everyone uses. Oh man, that's nuts. Dude, it's it's like, and I get it. Like the, the design system team is like, the, of one of the teams I lead is like 11 people trying to build for 600. Like we're not gonna be able to build stuff as quickly as they need it. And what we're trying to do is bring people together and say like, yeah, we get it. Like the thing you need, Sorry, we just ain't got it yet. But if you build it, how about you contribute it back and like help build the things? Because you know what? It's not just about you contributing it back so our design system can be better. Someone else might also need that. And if they see it in a common place, they're going to benefit. And so there's a you're, there's so much community building that has to happen because um, design at scale is incredibly challenging, um, especially when it's all in different parts of the business because not everybody's incentivized for success the same way. All of our goals are different. So no matter how much we want to collaborate in the end, we're always going to kind of lean back to that goal knowing like, yeah, well, I've actually been tasked with doing this thing and I'm going to be judged on that at your end, you know? Now I'm curious, like what your thoughts are on design principles versus a design system. Cause that's one challenge that we have. It's like, we have a design system sort of, and some of our departments follow it, but a lot of other departments have their own way of doing things. And we all use the same like marketing materials. Like we all use the same color, yep. color, you know, color coordination, all the same fonts, but components like the, the wheel is constantly being reinvented in different applications. So I'm curious, like, what do you feel is more important design principles or like a design system? I know I didn't put these questions in our, in our show notes, but I'm That's like, fine. this is a sincere question I have that I'd love to figure out. Cause so I don't know. I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah. I think they overlap. I don't think they're that different. So our design system characterizes our design principles. So all of our usage guidelines embody the principles. And we have actually a UX quality team that our design system team is partnering with to ensure that there's a level of standards. Because also, I don't know how many designers really want to be in the governance business. Like, I don't want to be the design system cop. That makes me like the shitty bad guy all the time, right? I want to be the cool guy. That's like, hey, look, I give you all these great tools. But what we've kind of done is like, this is the baseline. If you have to extend it, contribute it back. If you're going to stray completely, then guess what? You need to be able to be ready to answer to the UX quality team and the managers as to why you chose to go a different path. And our recommendation for you is that you clearly explain how our system somehow limited your ability to create an experience, like the right experience for the customer. And then actually, before we do that, well, let's just help you figure it out. It doesn't have to be either or, like we can partner with you. Yeah, that's great. That's awesome. So like, I'm curious, who are the best leaders to look at today as examples of like effective design leadership? Yeah, so for design leaders, um, you know, I've, it's hard to say there's a, there's a lot of people doing great work. Um, one of the events I follow to learn about designing leaders I haven't heard about yet or just additional exposures leading design. And 
Um, there's so many great folks at that conference that I've been learning about, but um, I've in that I've been listening to the work that like Kristen Skinner and Peter Merholz are doing. Um, there's a lot of great work being done around what it means to be a leader. I've been reading a lot of Simon Sinek. Um, he has a book called Leader Eat, Leaders Eat Last. It's a couple of years old. It's, it's really good. Um, I'm trying to think of books that I've read that are really good. Um, I believe it's Resilient Management by Laura Hogan. Anything she does is awesome. And she like she even has like video classes that you can watch. Um, Christina Woodkey has a great book called The Team That Managed Itself. And I really like her writing style because the first half of the book is fiction. So it's a fictional story about a team. Then the second half of the book is all the practical application based on that story. Makes it for a super fun and easy read. Um, I encourage people though, just like find anything. Like there's definitely always going to be someone who's at all the events and doing all the talking, but maybe try to go a layer or two below and listen to someone you haven't heard. Um, find a voice that's not common or to find a voice that's underrepresented and see what you can learn there. Cause it's not always that people have the best leadership advice. It's sometimes about their lived experience, <clears throat> lived experience. That's really, really good. And that's some of the stuff leader wise that I learned a ton from not like, Hey, here's five steps to like leading a team. It's hearing someone's lived advice uh, or lived experience that leads to advice over time. It's like, Oh wow. I had a similar experience and, wow, they handle that way different. I'm going to learn from that. Right. So that's really cool. That's cool, man. So like if I was a, you know, young designer or not even a young designer, just like a principal product designer, and I was interested in, in like transitioning to leadership, like what would you, what would your advice to them be? Like, what would be the first step? Um, find a leader, start picking their brain. Uh, what does it look like? Like, Hey, I'm interested in leadership. Like what what are your suggestions? Uh, maybe get in a position to lead a body of work, but not be someone's manager, because that transition from man from uh, maker to manager is actually one of the like less talked about but most challenging things. Right? Um, the experience I had in that was like, oh well, I know how to do these things. Oh, but you're you're doing them different. But it's heading towards the same good result. And that's when I learned not to be a micromanager, right? It's like I had to realize that as long as we were getting to the desired outcome, someone's style and approach might be different than mine. And I, you know, I can't force them to change. I want to support their growth. So I have to think about that. So um, do that. Be hungry. Never, like, just keep finding it. Go look for everything you can learn. There's so much content out there. There's so many books on leadership. There's a bajillion, there's podcasts, um, just go be a sponge and keep a learning mentality. There is anyone who thinks that they've reached a level of leadership where, okay, like I'm going to coast now means that that person's not going to be a leader for very much longer, or they will be, but they'll just have to switch jobs all the time because they're going to constantly get let go because that's not effective. Like you have to model growth. You have to model a learning mindset and just keep approaching it with a level of humility. It's like, okay, like, I have to like I have to understand like okay I'm a good leader, but I can't rest on that. Like you want to have enough confidence to be great at the work and to make the decisions you need to make, but you have to balance that with a level of like but I'm still going to stay hungry and I'm still going to be looking for like a different perspective. How do I shape this? How do I grow? So just dig in, look for it, go find it, find read things, read things people recommend, read things you never heard of. I, I'm a diversity of inputs is only going to make it better.
for sure. And I almost feel like leadership, it's almost like being a cheerleader. Like oh. you're kind of more cheering on your peers and stuff than you are like promoting yourself. Yeah. I just, uh, I, I, <laughs> hopefully by the time they hear this, they will have seen them. But I, today, one of my things I finished was writing what my expectations for my leadership team is. Mm-hmm. Like, this is what you're going to be doing. And one of them was that they are consistently finding ways to elevate and celebrate the work of their direct reports and their direct reports, direct reports, because this isn't about credit. Like if any, if anyone believes that they take credit for the work of their team and everyone thinks that they actually did that work, then that person should probably just, someone needs to sit down and have a talk. Cause that's just like, that's not reality, right? Like they should actually like, they should believe that I'm a tattoo artist and let me tattoo stick figures on them because that's just not reality, right? Like I'm never gonna be a tattoo artist and that's just not how leadership works. And we, people aren't gonna perceive them as the savior who came with all these great designs. You have to elevate your team because the often the mark of a great leader is seen even greater once they're gone. So if you move on, depending on the circumstances and your entire team crumbles, that's, that's concerning to me. Now, yeah, granted, yeah. there can be environments and things that contribute to that in a team like, hey, the business just isn't cooperative or things that happen, but you need to be constantly raising up leaders. And you know, the other one of the expectations I have for my leadership team is to constantly push me to be a better leader and hold me accountable because that's one of my ways of not getting comfortable because it can be easy. Like, Hey, things are going kind of great. I'm just going to cruise. Like, this is awesome. I want to enjoy it, which is great. We should, we should savor the, the great work we're doing, but like, we need to be thinking like, what happens if I fell down my stairs today? <laughs> you know, like, like I, that's how I literally approach my work is like, I need to make sure that I'm investing in my leaders so that they can run the show if I'm out of the picture, but even more so, uh, so that I could give them their own show or help them get to their own show. Like, it's not about keeping them. It's about raising them up and sending them. Let's go, go. Cause we need more good leadership design. As long as we all, we feel like it's been here for a while. It's still an incredibly young practice in comparison. Like it's probably in its pre-teens to teenage years at best, even though people say they've been designing for 20 years, the, the industry has evolved so much that that, that actually doesn't match up really in years, you know, of how long we've been doing this. And so we need more leadership. Think about the fact that the things we take as like gospel truth, like design systems and like how we code. And like, I was just excited for a while that we had a CSS reset. Now we have GitHub and we have all these ways to do and different work things. Like the game is constantly changing. So to be the same person you were 10 years ago, you're not going to make it. So we constantly have to be raising up new leaders that are, you know, and we have to be raising up leaders that don't look like us because we need to be raising up leaders that other people can see and say, yeah, that's someone I relate to. And so we have to make sure that we're finding ways to foster that because otherwise it's going to be a rut where we do the same shit all the time. And then next thing you know, we're like in our seventies, old white dudes in government or some bullshit, right? Like we've just missed that ability to raise up uh, a greater group of leaders who are doing great things because we got, we got silly with it. We got simple. We just got complacent. Yeah. And it's, it's funny. Like when you mentioned that things are constantly changing, like, I don't even think the term UX was even a thing 
even yep. when I was starting design, like back in 20, like 2009, 2010, I don't even think UX was even a term then. It was, that's what it was like budding. That's when people were like talking about it, but everyone was like, well, what is this? The same way people start talking about responsive design and they're like, wait, what? It changes with the size. Like, you know, it's like these things have to, they bud and they grow. And you know, what's interesting is most of them come from something else. Like all, a lot of UX comes from like human computer interaction. Information architecture comes from library science. Design ops, sorry, design friends, that comes primarily like we took a lot of shit from DevOps, right? It's like, there's, but that's because design is maturing as a practice. And so we see what other practices who've been around longer are doing. And then we model that in our own context, which means that, that at some point we have to start thinking about like, why do we keep replicating? Some of it makes sense. If it works, it works, right? Like don't, we, we need to be careful what we reinvent because reinventing for the sake of it's not good, but we need to find that balance between understanding what's happening in other spaces and then figuring out what that means for us and then driving things forward there. Yeah, totally. That's why agile is such a pain in the ass. I feel like there's, there's companies that do agile and companies that pretend ad- agile. Nobody like, does agile. <laughs> I, I don't care. Come for me, agile people. Like everybody does fragile, right? They do their own version of it where yeah. it's like, because it's just, you. there's never going to be a process that you can just rubber stamp on every way of working because organizations are different, people are different, needs are different, deliverables are different. You gotta be willing to take some level of it for what works for you and build from it from there. Just like if you like read a book on design leadership, it doesn't mean that you can instantly go do all those things in your organization. There may not be an appetite for it. Like people may not wanna be communicated to you that way. It might be different. So you have to figure out how to make it work in your context. So that's the same stuff with like these, these processes like agile. It's like, I get it, not, not, not hating on it. Um, but it's like, what's going to get shit out the door. That's what I'm yeah. call that whatever you want. I call it just getting shit out the door because no one, when the customer, you know, trust me, when a customer logs into capital one and it's like, Oh, cool. I finally paid off my credit card. You know what they don't say? I'm so glad I, man, that agile process, you really helped me pay off my credit card. They don't fucking care, man. They don't know anything about that. <laughs> Our idea is to hide the complexity and show simplicity and make it easy for people. So we get hung up on all these tools and processes, but it's not the, that's not the shit that matters. Well, I mean, I mean, we should be organized. We should have process so that it's not the wild west. That's why we have things like design systems and operations. But when those things become the thing, then we kind of are forgetting what we're doing. Cool, man. So if someone wanted to get a hold of you, uh, this is the time to plug yourself, dude. So uh, how could people get a hold of you? Um, uh, at Aaron and I on Twitter or just uh, Aaron Arizona on LinkedIn. Cool, man. Cool. Well, uh, I think that's all the time we have. That's the end of the podcast. So, dude, it's always good talking with you. Um, yeah, man. Like I said at the beginning, like before we even were, were recording, like it's been so many years, but it feels like it hasn't. It feels like talking with you like I just talked with you yesterday. Yeah, well, that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of what I dig about uh, like friendships and relationships is that's the kind of stuff that gets us through times when we're in a pandemic is like, you can talk to somebody you haven't heard in forever. And it's like, oh man, I wish it just seems like we were hanging out yesterday. And that's the kind of stuff we need right now. Totally, man. Well, thanks again for uh, being on the podcast. Of course, man. Anytime.